0: So last week, we started this study. This will be the second week that we're going to do it. We should wrap it up today. I hope we do, because I'm not teaching next week, and I don't want to leave cliffhangers. We started last week talking about the biblical covenants, and I started off our study by reading you uh, a quote out of a sermon from a local pastor here. As a reminder, this local pastor is... um, is influencing uh, either the second or first largest amount of people in the United States. Uh, He has lots of little places around here, lots of satellite campuses. Um, you You guys can imagine, I'm talking about Andy Stanley here. And he made some comments that I started off by reading last week, talking about how we need to unhinge ourselves, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And in that quote, He said this major statement, and I want this to be the highlight of what we're talking about today, where we are combating this type of thinking, this kind of thought process, this kind of teaching that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are hearing week in and week out, this kind of teaching. And again, just by way of reminder, he makes this momentous statement. He says this, Jesus' new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us, can stand on its own two nail scarred resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. Again, I cannot overstate the severity and the seriousness of this, this statement. At best, this leaves people questioning the legitimacy of all of Scripture. If we can't trust the Old Testament, how in the world can we even trust the New Testament? What is the purpose? All of Scripture, as we started to argue last week, is hinged on itself. It all proves itself. It all brings clarity to itself. And so to unhitch or unhinge ourselves from any portion of Scripture is to unhitch ourselves from all of Scripture, We talked about this last week, the book of Hebrews, the book of Galatians, the Gospels. And think about what Christ even said in the road to to Emmaus. He's come back after he's been resurrected. He's walking along the the road and a man comes to him and asks him. And he says in Luke, at the end of Luke, everything that was written in the uh, prophets and by Moses, the Old Testament, was what? About me. It is all pointing to me. Christ himself attests to this very thing. And so in an effort for us to see this, in an effort for me to help you guys grow in your understanding of God's redemptive plan, that it's all of Scripture that reveals it, we started looking at what the biblical covenants are. And through these biblical covenants, just by way of reminder, we talked about how they give us one continuous thread all the way from the beginning of Scripture all the way through the end of Scripture. It brings clarity, it brings harmony between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all one book that is profitable for all things, for causing us to grow as as the body. And as we tried to give a definition to a covenant, we did this, we said this, it's theologically, it's an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and His people. Remember, the Lord is using these uh, times and these events in history where he's making a promise, he's creating a covenant between him and his people so that he can start to reestablish this relationship that was broken and severed in the garden, right? We see that Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the night with God in the garden. But when sin crept in, immediately that, that relationship, that perfect relationship rather, was severed and broken, and what sets forth from that moment on, as soon as that happens, Genesis 3.15, the Lord puts into, plan, uh, uh, puts into motion a plan to redeem His people, to reestablish that relationship. And through these covenants, we see that start to unfold. And just by way of reminder, we're trying to... Hit three goals. First, I want us to understand that a fundamental or basic knowledge of the covenants will allow for a richer understanding of the entirety of Scripture. Two, we wanted to see that a clear knowledge of the covenants will provide a more robust perspective of God's ultimate redemptive plan. And third, a sound knowledge of the covenants will lead to a healthy view of the future of the church and Israel. We need to not only know what has happened in eternity past, what is currently going on now, but what will happen in the future. We do have a hope. We have something that is promised for us, and we need to understand these things. So let's jump into it. We have a lot to cover today, a lot of information. Have your Bibles ready, or your iPads, or whatever you're using. By way of reminder, let's just kind of go through this real quick. First, we looked at the Noahic Covenant, And we're looking at the background, the offering of the covenant, the sign of the covenant, the conditionality of the covenant, the duration or length of the covenant, the nature of the covenant, and then how the covenants correlate with one another. And just a brief summary of the Noahic covenant. We looked last week, it started in Genesis 6, 5. We just saw there that the condition of man's heart is only evil continually, that that is the way that we are born. Our heart is constantly chasing after evil thoughts and evil deeds, right? That is our condition. And so with that understanding and that background, the Lord launches into this redemptive plan. So we looked at how he offered it. We saw the sign. And it says here, a covenant, just a summary of the Noah covenant. It says, a covenant with all mankind, including both the redeemed and the unredeemed, in which God promised never to destroy the earth by flood again. Instead, God would provide a regular cycle of seasons for as long as the earth remains. So we see here that in his judgment, he wipes out all of earth because of that wicked heart, except for just Noah and his family In his kindness. He saves one family. And let's get this up here. Sorry about that. Not going to happen today. All right. So we'll go without the notes. So we saw that, again, the Lord is starting to launch into this. He says, uh, or he shows in his grace that he's going to preserve one family. And through that family, he's going to launch into these other covenants through Noah. He promises never to destroy the earth again in the way that he did the first time. He's never going to wipe it out through a flood. Next, we see the Abrahamic covenant. And just by way of summary, the Abrahamic covenant was God's covenant with Abraham. And it's uh, is the foundation of all his covenants with Israel, specifying a land, a multitude of descendants, and Abraham as a means of blessing for all the other nations. So through Abraham, he is starting to build this unique relationship, this specific relationship, and he promises him land, he promises him uh, an offspring, he promises him to uh, make him, uh, his name a great name. And from that great name will flow blessings to all the other nations. And the significance of that was the sign. What was the sign? Who can remember what the sign of this covenant was? Circumcision, right? It's to set the nation apart. It's for cleanliness. It's so that they are different than every other person. But as we kind of looked at very briefly, it alludes to a greater promise that is coming, which is circumcision of the heart. We're going to see that very clearly today in the new covenant. So through Abraham's lineage or his seed will become a great nation, And we are all going to see today that we are recipients of these promises today. Now, let's talk about the next covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant, or as some people title it, you may see it this, the Sinaitic Covenant, because this covenant was given at Mount Sinai, right? So, what is the background of the Mosaic Covenant? Well, the background of the Mosaic Covenant is this. It exposes the Abrahamic Covenant and provides the context through which it will be realized, through which the Abrahamic Covenant will actually come to fruition and be realized. If you have your Bibles, flip to Exodus 2.23. Exodus 223 And as we get here, we see that in Exodus 1, uh, uh, let me say this, at the end of Genesis, uh, Joseph had just died. The the Lord had just, um, or excuse me, just the death of Joseph is here. We see him, he has passed on. And then when we open up Exodus, it's immediately titled, Israel increases greatly in Egypt. And so we already see this promise to Abraham coming to fruition that his descendants and this uh, nation of Israel is in fact increasing. If you remember his promise in Genesis 15, he said, if you look to the sky and you see the stars and you can number them, this is how many of your offspring there will be. And so immediately we open up Exodus and we see this coming to fruition. We see that Israel is growing. And then we see in Exodus 2, chapter 2, the birth of Moses. We see that this special person, Moses, is born. We see his story, his background, and he is a direct descendant of Abraham. He's from the house of Levi. And then we see in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, these words. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew So we see here God recognizing His promise. He's reiterating His promise. He's remembering His promise, His Abrahamic covenant, right? He hears the groaning of of His people and He's remembering it and He's going to now enact His plan in which He promised them back in Genesis. And I want to see something significant here because the way that He's going to preserve His people is absolutely fundamental to what we believe Flip over to Exodus uh, 12, chapter 12. And as you're flipping over there, as most of you know, the chapters in between uh, where we just were and where we are now, what is going on there? Somebody tell us what's going on there. What has just happened in those chapters? The plagues, right? Absolutely. The Lord is enacting His judgment on an unbelieving nation of Egypt, right? But the Lord has His perfect plan, and this is how He's going to do this. And don't miss the significance of this. Follow along with me as I read through Exodus 14, verses 10 through 18. It says this. Um, Excuse me, sorry, uh, 12. Sorry, go back to 12. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. And read, listen, to, listen to this as I, I read. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat of the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Verse eleven. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall call it. Or you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse twelve. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, right? We talked about this last week. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be, a, be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. This is significant. Why is this significant? What do you guys think? Why would I go here when we're talking about the Lord enacting his plan of redemption and he is starting to unfold what he promised to Abraham back in Genesis? Why is this portion so significant? What do you guys think? Say that again. Say it a little bit louder. Absolutely, Amen. This right here is a foretaste of a greater, greater plan that we're going to see later on today. God has always required blood as a way of Passover, as a way of redemption, as a way of cleansing His people and cleansing uh, His nations. So we see here that he is going to pass over, He's going to enact His judgment, but He's going to show His kindness to His specific people Israel by passing over them through this act of the blood being placed over the, the, the doors, right? If we flip over to Exodus 14, the Lord has indeed started to bring His people out. He has started to take them out of the land of Egypt. And in verses 10 through 18, it talks about how Moses reminds the people they're, they're, already, um, they're already grumbling and complaining and said, why didn't you leave us in Egypt? It would have been easier for us to stay there. And Moses says, don't harden your hearts. Listen to this. Listen to what he's doing. He is bringing you out of the land of Egypt. He's doing this for your kindness. And so we know that he goes, they go through the sea. They're brought out of the sea. They're saved and All of Egypt is wiped out, right? And in verses 30 through 31, it says this. Thus the Lord, thus Yahweh, saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord, that Yahweh used against the Egyptians, so the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and his servant Moses. The Lord is showing His power. He's bringing Egypt out, right? They were in slavery for 400 years. And the Lord is is establishing that specific relationship with the nation of Israel by bringing them out. And don't miss this. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read this for you. But you remember we were in Genesis 15 last week. And in the middle of the Lord, enacting His Abrahamic covenant where He cut the, the animals in half, And then the Lord put uh, Abraham in a deep sleep. And he's enacting this this covenant. We saw this last week. Next is 15. In verses 13 through 14, he said this. Remember this. This is our connection here. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Verse 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we're seeing the background. We're seeing that the Lord has enacted His. He's starting to bring to fruition this Abrahamic covenant. We're starting to realize this. So, he has saved his people. He's brought them out. He's done exactly what he said he was going to do back in Genesis 15, very clearly. And he is reestablishing that relationship between man and God. So, this is the background. Now, let's look at the offering of the covenant where it's actually offered. Flip over to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. You can read all of Exodus 19. I know you guys are probably familiar with this, but I really want to highlight verses 3 through 9, so follow along as I read. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll go through 9. Exodus 19.1 On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord, Yahweh, covenant-keeping God, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called to the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words to the people of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So we see here that the Lord is enacting this covenant. And it's significant here because he's giving them stipulations. He's saying, Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Again, he's talking about here making them his treasured possession. He wants to reestablish that broken relationship from back in Genesis, back when Adam and Eve sinned. This is God's goal. This is his redemptive plan, is to reestablish that relationship with his people. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, the Lord's not just enacting his relationship with Israel, but he's saying, You are going to be, a, uh, um, uh, you're going to uh, declare who I am by you being set apart. Through your obedience, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and in that, my name will be glorified. Don't miss this. God is still being kind to them, absolutely. He is showing his kindness. But God's only concerned with his glory for his name, and we can't miss that. He says, you need to understand that I did this for you. I bore you up on eagles' wings. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So we see that the um, covenant is offered here. But what is the sign of the covenant? Who knows what the sign of the covenant is? Anybody? What do you think the sign is? We talked about what the sign was for the Noahic. It's the, uh, the rainbow. We talked about how circumcision is the sign for the Abrahamic. But what do you think the sign is for... The Mosaic Covenant. What's that? What? The law? It's not the law. It's part of the law. It's something in the law. The Ten Commandments? Close. The Sabbath. The Sabbath. Flip over to Exodus 31. Verses twelve through eighteen. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel, and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. And say, or, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that I may that you may know that I the Lord sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but The seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord, holy to Yahweh, covenant-keeping God. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. This is absolutely significant. We're going to see how this ties in with the new covenant later, that Jesus himself says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am over this day. And what is the only... Portion of the covenant that we do not keep today, right? That's the only thing that we are not called to observe in the new covenant. We do not have to keep the Sabbath. It's very interesting. Very, very interesting. And one thing I forgot to talk about here, I want to make sure we get this. Who, who was this covenant given to? We need to understand that this covenant was given to the nation of Israel, And I didn't cover that. We we are not recipients of this covenant. We are not held to this covenant. I want to make sure we're very clear about that. So we saw the sign. Now let's talk about the conditionality. What do you guys think? Are there conditions on this? Absolutely. We'll say that this is conditional, but absolute, right? Conditional, but absolute. 19, 5 through 8 says this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is is all mine. As long as you are obeying my commandments, then you will be my people. But as we're going to see, they do not keep his commandments. Nevertheless, the Lord still has a plan. If Israel was obedient, they would reap the blessing and promises of the Abrahamic covenant. You don't need to go there. You can write this down. But if you look in Leviticus 26, 1 through 13, it's very clear there that they would receive the lands. They would continue to multiply. They would be a great nation as long as they obeyed the commandments of the Lord. Read all of Leviticus. I know that's a hard book to read. It can be difficult to understand. But understanding the book of Leviticus is fundamental to what we believe. It is so beneficial. There are a lot of great resources out there that help bring clarity to that book. It's about the laws, of course, the Levitical laws. But having a a good understanding of of the laws gives us a better understanding of the new covenant. We do not have time to go there. (laughs) So, obedience would bring blessing. They would be recipients of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, if they were obedient, yet, if they were disobedient, it would bring a curse, right? And by Exodus 34, by chapter 34 of Exodus, we see that the covenant already has to be renewed. You don't need to go there, but just understand, this is how quickly the nation of Israel turned from being obedient to the Father. Now, Exodus 34 is not a new covenant. It's just a reestablishing of the Mosaic covenant. I want to be clear about that. There's not enough evidence to say that that's a new covenant, it's just a reestablishing of a of the already existing covenant. But what that does is that highlights how quickly this nation of Israel turned from God. That they were disobedient immediately. So what about the duration of the length? Well, as we saw in Exodus 31:16, it's everlasting, it's eternal. It's to be kept for all generations. And as we talked about, one of the points that we want to highlight in all of this study is that this has future implications. We need to still understand that Israel is set apart as a very special people for the Lord. The church has not been grafted in to be just like Israel. We are a part of the blessings. We are recipients of the blessings, but we are not Israel. Israel is still a special nation, and we need to understand that. And that has future implications for what Israel will do, how uh, they will rule over uh, the 12 nations when we are in the eternal kingdom. Again, this is not just uh, past history, present, but it is future implications as well. They are still a special people in God's eyes, and they have a special place in God's eyes. What about the nature? Well, by obedience and faithfulness to Yahweh, Israel would become his special possession a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Where else do we hear those words? 1 Peter 2, 9-10, through 10, right? Through their disobedience, as we'll see in the New Covenant, through the disobedience of Israel, the Gentiles have been grafted in and the Lord says, now you are to be a kingdom of priests, a nation that is holy and set apart for the Lord. Again, we see this Absolute harmonious thread tying all this together. Peter didn't just use those words flippantly. He used them specifically. And the way that this correlates with the other covenants, through the law, Israel was called to be a holy nation for the purpose of setting themselves apart and establishing the name of Yahweh through the other nations, bringing Him glory. But their perpetual disobedience and clear desire to be like the other nations would lead to a very drastic change in the nation of Israel. Their desire for a king would allow the Lord, for the Lord and His sovereignty to move from what we'll call a theocracy to a monarchy. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read it, but write down 1 Samuel 8. Go read what happens in 1 Samuel 8 that uh, causes us to get here. But this is the bridge that gaps these things. If you remember anything about that, just for a brief summary the nation of Israel comes to Samuel and says, we want a king. We want an earthly king to rule over us. We want to be just like the other nations. We're tired of God being the ruler over us. We want to be like the rest of the nations who have this establishment, this monarchy. And Samuel basically says, what is wrong with you? Are you crazy? So Samuel goes to the Lord and he's praying to him and the Lord says, you know what? If this is what they want, give it to them. And the Lord sets out and says, You're going to become slaves. You're going to have problems. You're going to have issues because of this earthly kingdom. So Samuel goes back, tells them what the Lord says, and they said, we don't care. We still want it. We still want an earthly kingdom. We want somebody to sit on a throne and rule over us. And think about this. How foolish that they would want an earthly king when the creator of the universe was already fighting for them, was already defending them, had already brought them out of Egypt and done everything that they did or done everything that he did in their name for them. They wanted an earthly king just to be like the other nations and those are their exact words, we want to be like the other nations. So the Lord says, okay, you got it. It's yours. But his plan was not thwarted. He still knew what he was doing. The Lord knew that they would be disobedient. And so his plan just continues to unravel and we continue to see it clearly. So now we see next in the Davidic covenant, the Lord continued this perfect redemptive plan. The Davidic covenant. So the background of the Davidic covenant, flip over to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. So as we get to this point, rebellion has continued in Israel. They have continued to buck against God. We can look through the book Book of Judges. If you don't believe me, read through Judges. The Lord just perpetually showing grace. Then they disobey. The Lord enacts judgment. Then He shows grace again. It's just a cycle over and over and over. Perpetual disobedience. And Israel continues to question the reign of God. And then as we get here, we see the providential failure of Israel's monarchical desire is made clear as Saul illustrates the disobedience of Yahweh. Follow along with me in 1 Samuel 13, 8-14. Saul has already been named the first king of Israel, the first earthly king of Israel, I should say, rather. And it doesn't take long for him to fail. Verses 8-14. through He waited, that's Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. If you read through Leviticus, you'll understand that this is a major, major no-no. Verse 10, As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at, uh, at Mishmash. Mikmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God in which, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over, for, uh, over Israel forever. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So we see disobedience. We see that he didn't trust in covenant-keeping God. He did not trust in Yahweh here. But what is significant about verse 14 is there's no time in between this failure, this disobedience, and the Lord saying, but this plan is already in motion. But now your kingdom shall not continue, period. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. This King David was already being prepared to be the king over Israel, the right king. Again, the Lord's plan is never plan B. This is exactly what he had already planned from the very beginning. It's no surprise here to God whatsoever. So we see that with the background of the failure immediately of this humanistic uh, monarch, the Lord starts to establish His plan and bring to fruition this next portion. So that's the background of it. Let's talk about the offering of it. Flip to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So the Lord has already made... David, his king, he has already established him, yet, as you guys know, he is still at uh, David, has been having uh, many issues with Saul. And we see here, as we get to this point, the Lord establishing his covenant with David. And we'll read verses 8 through 17. It says, This now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is the Lord talking to Nathan the prophet. He says, "Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David: Thus says the Lord of hosts: I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. Again, God always enacting, always being the uh, the initiator of these things. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut you off from all your enemies, from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Where does that sound familiar?" And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord, Yahweh, declares to you that the Lord, Yahweh, will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke. To David. So we see that this promise, this covenant, is given to David. And yet we know that eventually it's going to spread to all mankind, that we will all be recipients of this wonderful prop, this uh, promise. And just some things to note here. What are some of the things that he promises to David? What do you guys notice here? A kingdom will be established. What else? He will appoint a place that is absolutely significant. What else? What's that? A descendant. a descendant. Absolutely. What else? What about peace? They will see peace. They have been in war for so long, constantly in conflict. But he says, I'm going to offer you peace. That is significant too. What, somebody else is going to say something. Mercy, discipline, absolutely. These all kind of sound familiar, right? He promised a lot of these same things to Abraham. So we see he's offering these things. He's giving these things as part of the covenant. And what do you think the sign is for this particular covenant? What do you think the sign is? Christ, his lineage, his seed. But not just his seed, but it's the location of his seed, as we just said. This is Jerusalem. This is a specific, specific place where his kingdom will be established forever. Why is Jerusalem significant? Well, a lot has already happened there. A lot will happen there in the future, right? In this very specific place. Just as an example, this is where Abraham went to offer his own son. To offer his own son and where the son will ultimately be offered, right? This is a significant place. In Scripture, this is actually defined as the apple of God's eye. This is a unique, special place. You can look in, we just read it, but verses 18 through 29, you can see that the sign is David's lineage, his seed, his offspring, and that this place is significant, Jerusalem. But what about the conditionality? Are there any conditions on this? No conditions and given unilaterally by God. God says, "I'm going to establish this." You showed me clearly that through a human ruler, a human king, you would fail. you could not handle this. And so I'm going to enact this, and this is going to last. This is uh, under my control. There are no conditions, and I am giving this covenant. What about the duration of the length? Well, it's eternal, it's everlasting. Second Samuel 7:13. So the nature of this covenant, the house, the throne, the lineage, and the kingdom of David will be established forever. And this correlates with the other covenants this way. Through the line of the Davidic covenant will come the Messiah, who because of his royal lineage will rightly be due the throne. Remember, this is significant that this is now an earth, not just an earthly uh, kingdom, but it is a... Kingdom, nonetheless, that it is a royal lineage. This implication reaches far beyond Jesus' first coming and points towards the final days when he will come to establish his kingdom for good, forever, and he will ultimately fulfill the promise made to Abraham. Again, this all ties together. I know you're probably thinking, you've said that a hundred times. Don't miss it. It's tied together. These all flow so well together. You cannot separate one covenant from another. You cannot do that. The new covenant does not set on its own. It's all built on these other promises that God has given. And so that does bring us to the new covenant. The new covenant. The background and the need for the new covenant. Write this down, I'll read it for you. Does anybody know what Je- uh, Jeremiah 17:9 and 10 says? This is the background and the need. Jeremiah 17:9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10 I the Lord, I Yahweh, covenant-keeping God, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Genesis 6.5 Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Man's heart is still deceitfully wicked. It's still searching after vain things, vanity, sin, groping about, right? Trying to find anything to satisfy. So the background of the need is just what it was at the very beginning. The absolute, indefinite, sinful condition of man still requires a Savior. Now, these verses are spoken about Judah, but again, Genesis 6, 5 says that this is the condition of all men, not just Israel. And I love the prophets. I love how the Lord uses the prophets. What was the purpose of the prophets? What do you guys think? To do what? Absolutely. And what did He always do in these, in these warnings? He always said, if you turn to the Lord, if you repent and you turn to the Lord, He is faithful to forgive you. And yet, they never did. Or they did and they immediately went back to their sin. We always see the grace and the kindness of God. God does not just drop the hammer for no reason. He does it because even when He offers grace and mercy and kindness, man rejects Him in their sinfulness. So we can't miss that. What about the offering of the covenant? Flip over to Jeremiah 31.31. 31. Jeremiah 31.31. 31. This is the offering of the covenant, the giving of the covenant. Verses 31-40 through 40 say this, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for the light by day, uh, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the, for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the, uh, to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Gareb, and shall then turn to Gora the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook kidron to the uh, to the corner of the horse uh, to the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the lord and shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever we could spend weeks going through this but just some things that we need to point out here we're seeing here that he is saying No longer will you be able to be disobedient in the sense of I am going to change your heart now. This is no longer just do this or don't do this, cursings and and, uh, blessings. But the Lord is going further now. He's saying, I am going to give you a new heart. I'm going to write my law on your heart. And he's giving this to Israel. Keep that in mind. He is saying this to Israel. But as we'll see in Romans 11, through their perfect disobedience, the Lord opens this up through Christ to the Gentiles because Israel does reject Christ when he comes. So indeed, this covenant is given to Israel. Don't miss that. But because of their rejection of this covenant, when Christ does come, we are now recipients as Gentiles. You can also flip over to Ezekiel 36. Don't go there, but read Ezekiel 36. You see this as well. We see Him offering this. You see it clearly. But flip over to Luke 22 real quick. And let's see how this ties in with now. Luke 22. And thank the Lord in His providence that we're going to read this today as we prepare our hearts even now to partake in this Lord's Supper today. Luke 22, verses 14 through 23. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, being Jesus and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given the uh, thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Future implications. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup out—that that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, as it has already been determined from before the foundations of the earth. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them who was going to be the greatest, or who's going to do this, excuse me. So we see here the connection, right? He is now the Passover lamb. In the same way that God saved Israel, brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, he is now making a better covenant, a new covenant a grander covenant in which anybody can partake in. And it's done by what? His blood, his life, his sacrifice. Just as the lamb at the Passover had to be without spot, without blemish, Jesus Christ is the same way. So what is this saying? Well, the covenant is no longer a thing, but it's a person. Not just any person. It's God incarnate. It's Yahweh made in the flesh. It's covenant-keeping God, bringing himself down to the most humble way that he possibly can, becoming like man and giving himself up in order to establish this covenant. Again, this just highlights the weakness of man that God himself not only has to start these covenants, but he has to establish them. And then he has to make himself incarnate, becoming like man, just in order to enact these promises. just as we said this is first given to Israel but as they rejected Christ the Gentiles were grafted in you can read in Romans 11 we won't go there but remember what he said to Abraham all the nations would be blessed eventually through this promise to you so what is the sign we've already alluded to it a circumcised heart right a circumcised heart it's a new man that is the sign when you see somebody believe in the fundamental truth that Christ died on the cross, that He is the ultimate Passover Lamb, when you see somebody believe in that and come to Him, humble themselves before Him, believe Him, have faith like Abraham did, right? And you see that heart become a heart of flesh and you see that new man, that is the sign. You can read that in Jeremiah 4.4, 4. you can read that in Romans 2.28-29. through 29. Or Romans 4.11. So that is the sign. What about the conditionality? What do you guys think? Are there conditions? What do you think? Absolutely there are conditions. They are conditional, but, listen to this, guaranteed for all who call upon the name of God in faith. It is conditional, but it is guaranteed. What does Jesus say? all who come to me and call in my name, I will receive them. Jeremiah 29, 11-19, you can write that down. It is conditional, but it is guaranteed for all who come, call upon His name. What about the duration or the length? Well, it's everlasting. Jeremiah 32, 36-41. It is eternal. Again, this gives us wonderful hope. This is future implications for us. And so what about the nature? Well, the Lord would write His law on the heart of Israel and Judah and put the fear of Him in their heart. This will result in a heart to know God and wholeheartedly turn toward Him so that He will be their God and they will be His people. He will forgive their sins and gather them to live securely in the land of Israel, right? A righteous descendant of David will execute righteousness and justice on the earth. This is the Davidic covenant coming to fruition. And Israel and Judah will acknowledge that, righteous, that their righteousness is the Lord Himself. Not their works, not the law that they keep, but the Lord Himself is their righteousness. The descendants of David and the descendants of Levi will be multiplied, Abrahamic covenant, and they will serve the Lord. What he does for Israel will reveal his joyful, praiseworthy, and glorious name to all the nations of the earth, imparting to them fear and trembling because of all the good that God does. So how does this correlate with the other covenants? Well, the new covenant is the culmination of God's plan. Because of the perpetual disobedience of Israel and all the nations, the Lord takes it upon himself to write the law upon their hearts, upon the hearts of men, and offer up, the once for all perfect sacrifice in which all of God's promises have been pointing to. Genesis 3.15, right? As soon as that sin problem enters the world, the Lord says, don't worry, I've got a plan. And so the hope again, is that as we see this, we see that from Genesis one one all the way through the end of Revelation, there is a perfect redemptive plan. It is Coming to culmination, we have seen it in Christ. He will still return, though. When we are made in glory, we will see the final culmination when the new heavens and the new earth come and descend on the earth. Again, I just encourage you to understand that we have to stand on the Old Testament in order to get to the New Testament. You cannot neglect, you cannot unhitch yourself from any of Scripture. It's all perfect and it all builds upon itself. And through these covenants, I hope that you guys saw that, that redemptive plan. These moments in time when God made promises to specific people at specific places for specific reasons, all ultimately to bring about His redemptive plan to fix the sinful problem of Genesis 6-5 and Jeremiah 17-9. He will indeed judge the earth. Some have already been judged. But He does have this perfect plan. He is enacting it. And we are recipients through the new covenant of his grace and his mercy. Any thoughts, questions? Okay, thank you guys.